I had no sense of what the future was going to bring, but I did know the questions that I wanted to answer. Hmm. And that is how I have spent my life. And I also knew the various small things that gave me joy. And I knew the mountains I wanted to climb. I knew the dogs I wanted to train. I knew the people I wanted to see. But in terms of what I would do, it always came from the questions I wanted answered. Claudia Golden has spent her life studying women's participation in the workforce. She was the first woman ever to become a tenured professor of economics at Harvard and is one of only three women who've ever won the Nobel Prize in economics. Over the course of her career, Golden has published foundational research on the ways women balance work and family, the persistence of the gender wage gap, and how birth control has influenced how women make decisions about their lives. She's the world's leading expert on how the workforce impacts women's lives and how women impact the workforce. And now she's one of Time's 2024 Women of the Year. In our conversation, Golden recounts the moment she won the Nobel Prize, how she discovered her passion for economics, and why she advises her students not to think too hard about their futures. I'm Charlotte Alter, Senior Correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. So I want to start by asking you about the big news, which is your Nobel Prize in economics. In October of 2023, you became the third woman and the first solo woman to ever win the Nobel Prize in economics. Where were you when you got this piece of incredible news? I was in the place where most people on the East Coast of the U.S. are, which is in bed. Because (laughs) remember that they are six hours ahead of us, they meaning Sweden, and they want to make certain that you are up and around for their 11 o'clock press conference. They call you at about 4.30 in the morning, and they say, you have to prepare for a press conference. That gets you up. (laughs) Yeah. And so is this the type of thing where, like— you know you're up for it and you're sort of thinking, oh, maybe this 4 a.m. phone call might be happening? Or is this truly like you're in bed and you got a phone call? No, it's truly a surprise. However, everybody knows that that particular day, this year it happens to have been October 9th, the call will be made to someone Mm -hmm. for the economics prize. But it is (laughs) a big surprise, of course. Yeah. So I want to move back in time and talk a little bit about your early life and how you came to this work, if that's okay. Growing up in the Bronx in the 1940s and 50s, there were not a lot of women economists, correct? I mean, how did you even begin to think of this as something that you were interested in? So I, I don't think I knew what an economist was. But I knew at a very young age that I wanted to be a scientist, and I knew that I was going to study science. And so I went to the Bronx High School of Science, and I discovered aspects of science that I absolutely loved. And this was peering into a microscope 
and seeing bacteria and understanding the role of bacteria in infectious disease. And that was what I decided at some point was going to be my calling. I was going to be a scientist of infectious disease. I never thought of being a doctor because I had a very narrow view of what doctors were. Doctors came to your house and gave you a shot of penicillin in your rear end. Right. (laughs) And that was the only thing I knew about doctors. I didn't know that doctors were also scientists. And then I went to Cornell University to do bacteriology. And when I got to Cornell as a freshman, I realized that I didn't know a lot of other subjects. Mm -hmm. I had never heard of economics, and I didn't know anything about political theory, and I didn't know anything about anthropology. And so I took many different subjects, which I advise all undergraduates to do, and I discovered that economics resonated with me in part because it makes sense So it's not just a set of facts or observations or opinions. It's a complete system. So there is so much talk right now about sort of the importance of, like, you can't be what you can't see and the importance of role models and the importance of trailblazers in terms of proving what's possible. But it sounds like you did a lot of your research and blazed this path yourself. So— Take me through what that was like for you. Right. So my mother was a teacher and became a principal, and so perhaps she was a a role model. I certainly didn't have a role model of a woman when I went to graduate school or when I was an undergraduate, but that never made much of a difference to me. But you've hit upon something important that I've always tried to sort of grapple with in my mind, which is Hmm. what did I think was possible? And I think I thought anything was possible. Hmm. And why didn't I think that at the time women would have been good role models? I think part of it was that most of the girls I knew were not individuals who I would have looked to for being role models, Hmm. Uh, and I would have seen them as more frivolous. Hmm. There were certain girls I knew at Bronx Science who were utterly, utterly brilliant, and I thoroughly admired them. Hmm. I knew young women when I was at Cornell who I was inspired by, but I did not know many women who were older Hmm. who I would look to. Now, people I met when I was in graduate school, they were phenomenal teachers. They were all individuals who later in their lives received the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. Milton Friedman, for one, he was a down-to-earth, wonderful, lovely person. Milton understood the importance of having a life apart from the university, Hmm. having family. And so they were my role models, people like that. Hmm. And let me also say that that Milton is one of the few male economists who is almost my height. (laughs) (laughs) Really? How tall are you? I'm 5'2", and he's (laughs) 5'2". So what was that like? Would you joke about it? Oh, no, you would never joke with Milton about his height, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, (laughs) 
When we come back, Nobel Prize winner Claudia Golden takes a deep dive into her groundbreaking research about women's economic evolution over the last century. More in a moment. So I'm curious, what led you to focus specifically on women's participation and evolution in the labor force? How did you arrive at that specialty? So it became pretty clear that the person who was being omitted from the discussions, we would talk about the children and the male head of the household. We would talk about single women who were working or widowed or those that were separated, abandoned. But we hardly talked about the married woman, the wife, the mother. And I realized that her story was unfolding through the 20th century, and it was a story that someone should tell in a manner that was big and bold and that dug deep into the history. So that's one piece of it. The second piece of it, though, is that labor economists had always studied women in the economy. And the reason is that for labor economists from the 1940s to the 1970s, the individual who was most interesting was the woman because Hmm. women's Hours of work were increasing. Their labor force participation was increasing. Their labor supply was very elastic, was very responsive to changes in wages, whereas that for men was generally not. I mean, women's labor force participation was increasing during the mid part of the 20th century from like 20 or 30% to about 70%. That's a Hmm. very, very large increase. And so that was when I decided that I would focus all my attention on women in the economy. Um, Well, I was wondering if you can help us understand where women are in the workforce now. Because clearly this hasn't been, as we've seen through your research, it hasn't been a, a clean narrative progression of every decade getting successively more open, more opportunities for women necessarily. It's a little bit more complicated than that. And so I'm wondering if you can just kind of help us situate where current women are in the history of women's labor force participation. Right now, about 45% of the young women in the U.S. will graduate from college. We're becoming almost a majority. And so it's important to think about how our aspirations, our goals, our achievements have evolved over time. So if we go back to a group that graduated college around the turn of the 20th century and just before World War I, and it was a group that could achieve either family or career. They could almost never have both. Half of the college graduates 
from that group never had a child or adopted one, Hmm. and about a third never married. So some part of them aimed for a job or a career and knew that this was going to be incompatible with them having something else. So we then moved to group two, which is a transition generation. Hmm. But the real group of importance is group three, which is the group that graduates college from the mid-1940s to the mid-1960s, and they are the mothers of the baby boom. So the age at first marriage plummets. Even for college graduate women, the median age at marriage is about 22, 23, which means that people are meeting their spouse in college. And so the mothers of the baby boom then aim for a family, and then a job, but they had it sequentially. So whereas for the first group, 50% of them didn't have a child, by the third group, 90% of those who married and about 90% married had a child. So we move from college women being either mothers or career women to a group of individuals who were almost uniformly both, right? but not at the same time. You have a family, and then you go back to work or you begin work. Hmm. And then what's fascinating is we move very quickly to group four. And so that's a group that's graduating college from about 1970 to the early 80s or so, and I'm in that group. This group looks to the baby boom mothers and says, you're making a mistake because having the kids, that's a piece of cake. Yeah, You're having lots of kids, but that career, that's a real problem. So what we're going to do is we're going to cement our careers and then will have the kids later. Mm-hmm. And they're armed with the pill and with the ability to control their fertility a lot better. The age at first marriage begins to soar. So it increases by about three years in a period of about six years, which is a phenomenal increase, giving them breathing time to pursue advanced degrees. You can go to law school, you can get an MBA, you can begin medical school, you can begin a PhD program. So as a group, they married later, they tried to cement their careers and then have their kids. But about 27% of that group didn't have a child. They sort of woke up at some point and said, well, We forgot to have the kids. Mm -hmm. And group five, which is the most recent group, graduating college sometime after 1980, they're in their 60s. They're the ones who said, we are going to have both. We're going to have a career and we're going to have a family. Wow. 
So I'm curious, a lot of this work began in the early 1970s. Were you part of the feminist movement at that time? Did you meet or collaborate with any of the sort of more prominent feminists of that moment? No. And it's probably something that I regret. My colleague in in economics, Francine Blau, who I owe a lot to, was, was a real pioneer and was one of the economists who began the group c in 1971-72, and I did not. But part of that was that Francine was here at Harvard, and I was at the University of Chicago. And they were two very different places, and they probably are still two very different places. Mm-hmm. But then you went on to break ground at Harvard by becoming the first woman granted tenure in the economics department in 1989, right? Right. So it's sort of interesting. I didn't do anything. They did it. Hmm. Okay? So I didn't break any ground. Somebody gave me a position and said, you are the first. Huh. That's interesting. No pickaxes were used by me. Why do you think it took so long for them to do that? Uh, I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, one point that you have to realize is that there weren't that many women around, Mm -hmm. okay? Now, in 1975, I visited at Harvard and taught a course, and there were two women on faculty at that moment. And one of them was Janet Yellen. Wow. So I think it's important then to sort of look back and ask, who should they have appointed at which moment? Hmm. But who were the big names in economics who were women who uh, were passed over? Mm -hmm. So that thing you just said about the pickaxe makes me curious about something else I was going to ask you about, which is, you know, over the course of the last maybe 10 or 15 years, there's been this divided discourse about women and work. And I'm, you know, of course, specifically thinking of the lean in, Sheryl Sandberg discourse and sort of the debates over how much of women's economic success is related to individual ambition versus how much of it is related to systemic forces and broad economic structures and cultural forces that allow and support women in their economic participation. What do you make of that discourse? Are those the right questions to be asking? Uh, there, there's another part of this that's extremely important, which is the intersection between what we would like and what the labor market offers to everybody. Hmm. So to the extent that we talk about a particular type of couple, this would be a different sex couple in which there's both husband and wife, both mother and father, and they have children, they have care responsibilities, they're both lawyers, they both have equal ambition, they both have equal abilities, and they take jobs in big-ticket law firms. They have heavy debt that they want to pay off, so they Mm -hmm. go the corporate route, and they do that for a while, and then they realize that that is untenable. 
they decide to have a second child and they realize that we we just can't do this anymore. We can't both put in these hours mm-hmm. because it's it's not that one of us is going to stay home. It's that one of us has to be on call. So when the nurse calls and says that the kid has to be taken home, someone has to do that. And so you have to be somewhat proximate. And so they decide, well, we could both go to a smaller law firm. And then they see the price tag and they realize we're going to be giving up an enormous amount by doing that. And so one of us is going to go to the boutique law firm where we have the ability to leave during the day or give clients to someone else, pass on clients. And so you can see where that leads to greater flexibility. And one of us is going to stay at the big ticket law firm. So they've optimized. But the point is that they're optimizing given the constraints of the labor market and the way in which they have optimized is by and large, the woman will go to the boutique law firm and the man will stay at the big ticket law firm. So it's also a part of the norms and traditions and expectations of the people around us. It may also be the desires on the part of the parents that it's done that way, but we can't ignore the fact that this is more standard than we think it ought to be, that if it was a coin flip, it would make us feel a lot better. But it still means that there's couple inequity. Mm -hmm. Any way you do it, even if you had a coin flip, it would be couple inequity. But given that it's not a coin flip and that women tend to step back and men tend to step forward, It means that couple inequity leads to gender inequality in the aggregate. Mm -hmm. So this way of thinking about it, I think, is extremely important because the scenario that I just created tells us that what we see in terms of the aggregate numbers of who earns more and who earns less is not coming about entirely because there are biased supervisors and discrimination in the workplace. Mm -hmm. It's coming about because of certain aspects of the workplace, how they interact with our own personal needs and demands, and how we are, in some sense, enticed to have couple inequity by very high degrees of earnings in what I call jobs that are greedy. Yeah. So this concept of greedy jobs, which is something you've written about a lot, is one that I've been thinking about a lot, particularly in the context of what you were talking about with the different groups. And I'm thinking specifically of the one where they would do motherhood and career sequentially rather than at the same time. That seems to me to be a choice that is also related to men's earning power. The idea that women could spend half of their adult lives not working and yet (laughs) having a roof over their heads and food to eat and raising their children without being part of the economic workforce seems to me to be related to 
how much money men could make, that that a single salary could support a family of four in a way that in many American cities it can't anymore. Yeah, I would take enormous issue with that, and I don't think okay, we so want to go in that direction because yeah. that that is a ridiculously romantic view of the past that does not exist. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because it is just not the case <laughs> that that family of four with one income had the amount of goods and services that people mm. do today. Okay. Okay. So we made a decision at that moment that one income with the mother at home taking care of the kids was sufficient. And now we look back on that and we romantically and incorrectly say that they had so much. They did not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't necessarily think that they had so much, but just that it would be even possible seems very unlike the families that I see today. It's still possible. Yeah, but maybe under different standards. It, it, it's No, it's still possible, but we have a set of desires that mean that we want more. Right, right. What is the best advice that you give to your students about how to structure their lives, particularly if they want to have both a career and a family? Very, very good question. The first thing is that there are two things that I never do. I do not predict the future, and I do not give people advice. Okay. However, <laughs> however, one of my students long ago said something to me that has stayed with me forever. Hmm. And it was when I said to her, what do you want? And she said, I want a partner who wants what I want. So the best advice that I have is to find someone you want to spend the rest of your life with, or at least what you think is the rest of your life, and make certain that that person wants what you want. It makes it very reflexive, a way in which you're thinking about each other. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of the advice I would give. I said that I don't give advice, but the one thing I do tell my students, because most of my students have spent an enormous amount of time since they were little kids thinking about their future. Hmm. And I think that that's a way of hemming yourself in, and you are going to be more disappointed than not. And they often ask me about my own life. And I tell them that I had no sense of what the future was going to bring, but I did know the questions that I wanted to answer. Hmm. And that is how I have spent my life. And I also knew the various small things that gave me joy. And I knew the mountains I wanted to climb I knew the dogs I wanted to train. I knew the people I wanted to see. But in terms of what I would do, it always came from the questions I wanted answered. Hmm. Claudia, I want to end by asking you, 
if you, I know you just said that you don't predict the future, but given that you sort of outlined this this recent history of women's economic participation, what do you think is the next phase? What is the next group of women? It's the next group of men. It's not the next group oh, of women. Interesting. Tell me about that. Well, the story that I just told you was really about family and sharing. Mm-hmm. And it was also about the interaction with the labor market. So if more individuals say to the firms that they're working for, and I think more and more are, they say, we want to take some time off. We want to enjoy. They want to climb whatever mountain they want to climb or run a marathon or be with their loved ones or go visit some part of the world that they have never seen, that they should feel that they are able to do that. And to do that means that firms have to make certain that they don't say to workers, you must be here because this client needs only you. Hmm. you. They have to find a way, and there are lots of ways of doing this, so that workers can be substituted for other workers without commodifying them. Hmm. We've done this in pediatrics. We've done this in anesthesiology. We've done this in pharmacy. We've done this in personal banking. So if you have one or two substitutes for yourself, it means that you can take the time off. You can respond to be with a sick child. You can respond to take your dad to the dentist. And you don't have to feel as if you have let down your employer or your clients or your students or your patients. Mm-hmm. Well, Claudia, it's been so powerful getting to learn more about your research and findings on some of these massive topics and really getting your insight into why our economy is built the way it is. But now we want to turn to some of the smaller things that make up your everyday life in a segment we like to call The Last Time. So when is the last time you mentored a young economist? Uh, I do it every day. When is the last time you worked with your husband, who's also your colleague? Uh, worked on what? We we had to clean up after our dog who had a bleed from his arm, and we had to bring him to the hospital yesterday. Oh. So we work, we work on things all the time. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. The, the dog is fine. Okay. So we— <laughs> Oh, God. Well, I'm so happy to hear that. Was this your dog, Pika? His name is Pika. Oh, Pika, Pika. <laughs> so actually, my next question was, when's the last time you took a trip with Pika? Oh, well, we go to Fresh Pond, the local area that you walk around every weekend. The last time I took a trip with him was a couple of weeks ago. I visited my friend in uh, Hanover, New Hampshire. When is the last time you read a book that you couldn't put down? (laughs) I wish I could say that it was the two books I'm reading now because I keep on falling asleep on them. (laughs) But Lincoln at the Bardo, I thought Mm -hmm. I could not put that down. I loved that book. It was both disturbing and enlightening and thrilling and thought-provoking. Yeah. When's the last time you played hooky from work? 
I don't even know what that means. <laughs> really? <laughs> no, because plain hooky means doing something that you prefer to your work, but my work is what I often prefer to my work. Hmm. So, yeah, okay, so every now and then I'll do the spelling bee in the New York Times. So that would be plain hooky. But sometimes that is to restart your brain. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 Great. Wonderful. Okay. Claudia, this is so interesting. Thank you so much for making time to speak with us today. I really have learned so much from your work, and I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. If you want to learn more about Claudia Golden's groundbreaking research, pick up the latest edition of Time magazine. She's been chosen as one of Time's 2024 Women of the Year. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. So send your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. It's produced by Nina Bisbano and Allison Bailey. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Joe Plord. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmuth is our fact checker. Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Dave O'Connor, Michael Erlinger, and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>